Hey Ron, it's an exciting day. The debut interview for our new podcast, The R&J Yarn. We are two mates who play tennis together here in Melbourne. We decided to start a podcast that tells the stories of the unsung heroes and leaders in our community, whose stories sometimes go untold. So Ron, how do you feel? I feel excited, Jimmy, and I'm delighted that our first guest really encapsulates why we set up the podcast. Our podcast is all about us having a great yarn with someone who is an expert in their field, sharing their life story with our guests and having those really deep conversations about mental health and well-being. So true, Ron. We spoke to Ken Christie about his career journey which saw him become one of the top 10 executives at NAB. This will be great listening for graduates or business people over the summer break. Totally agree, Jimmy. And, you know, I'm currently finishing up my studies. So this chat, you know, has really helped me to think about you know, how to approach life after uni. So let's get into it and um, we'll chat to you guys afterwards. Today's guest is Ken Christie. Ken's story starts here in, a, in Melbourne, Australia, where he grew up and studied. His career then in financial services took him all over the world, including stints in the United States, Switzerland, Indonesia and New Zealand. Ken's successful business career is no surprise, given his relentless pursuit of improvement, which is a topic we'll discuss today. And this was evidenced by his graduation from Victoria University Melbourne University and Harvard University. Ken is a role model senior executive in financial services firms. He's held C-suite roles across the NAB group for 15 years. During his stint in New Zealand, his finance team was recognised as the best in New Zealand. Well, his experience in Australian roles included merging business units and handling the fallout from the Banking Royal Commission. Ken regularly shares his experiences as a keynote speaker at financial services conferences and even the odd podcast, where he describes how he's built high-performing teams. So Ken, it's an absolute honour for Ron and I to have you as a guest on the R&J Yarn today. Thanks very much, James and Ron. That's great. I'm glad I could join. <laughs> That's all right. So Ken, we like to start with some quick-fire questions where kind of like this or that um, and I thought with you it'd be great to kind of with your banking experience we could do a segment of lend or not lend so I'm just going to go through a few different um, businesses and you just got to say if you'd lend the money or you wouldn't lend the money sure so Melvin Star observation will wouldn't lend okay <laughs> a cafe in South Yarra potentially <laughs> um, a high-end restaurant in the CBD potentially <laughs> vacant land um, in San Remo yeah land oh that's good that's Ron's got his eye on that Ken <laughs> um, a startup a startup podcast run by two tennis mates uh, yeah I'd invest <laughs> good good okay um, okay so now we've verified your banking knowledge, we have some more general quickfire questions. So what is your favourite ski slope in the world? Jackson Hole, Wyoming. What mm. is the favorite, your favourite city that you've lived in? New York. And who is your favourite Formula One driver or team? Ricardo. Ricardo, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, superb, superb, Ken. <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to cover a lot of those topics, uh, especially your interest a bit later on. But first of all, uh, what we're going to do, we'll go back to how it all began. And can you tell us a bit about your childhood growing up in Melbourne? Um, did you come from like a family of business people? Yeah, look, I grew up in Melbourne, as, as you've indicated previously. My parents were small business owners, so, um, but had some real challenges with their business. They had ups and downs. Um, and work incredibly long hours in a small business and they were in the clothing industry, a really tough industry, and they'd left school very early in their life and they'd sort of been working for themselves, I think, since they were about 18 or 19 and they worked together, my parents, um, 
for nearly 50 years together. So, uh, yeah, they, they were true small business owners. So I grew up in a family that um, certainly wasn't a corporate environment and we struggled at times, um, you know, with the ups and downs of small business. So, yeah, it was a, within the, uh, in, in Melbourne, in Preston. Um, so it was sort of a, suppose a lower middle socioeconomic suburb at the time. And, um, yeah, we had a factory in Preston and Reservoir, so where the factory was. So used to catch the tram down after school and go to the factory and often come back late at night. Yes. Mm. Do you think, so do you think from your childhood, like, is there any traits you picked up off your parents or um, your wider family that you think sort of stayed with you for the rest of your life? Oh, I think the commitment of hard work. My father and mother were never really educated, uh, but, you know, they had incredible values and morals. And I think that I learned a lot from my parents from that perspective. And, you know, I watched them work incredibly hard. So I think hard work was something that they, you know, they taught me that it's really important to do. And I had, you know, always jobs to do and things like that for the kid, you know, bear to paper around or whatever the job was, but um, we had to earn our own money. And uh, yeah, so a sense of values, I suppose, was the core thing. Mm. So, so Ken, for someone um, like me who's finishing up uni and a lot of the listeners, um, can you tell us a bit about how you got your first job out of uni? Because I think that's sort of a key sort of area in a lot of people's um, lives where it's that first step into their career. Um, whether what sort sort of things did you do to kind of get land that first job once you'd finished um, your your schooling and your education? Yeah, so maybe just just to go back just a, one step prior to that, my father always, you know, gave me a couple of pieces of really good advice which have been stuck yeah. with me my whole career. And the first was never worry about the job you're going to have; worry about the person you're going to work for. So. Mm. I've spent my whole career not at all ever worrying about what role or what job or what title or whatever I had. You know, I spent my whole career worrying about can I work for a person and learn from that person and is that person got great values, morals and experiences that I can learn from. The second thing he said, you know, when you come out of university was, you know, whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability if it's inside your control. So if you're... You know, if you've got a document, make sure that you proofread it, make sure it's grammar checked, make sure the fonts are all the same size because you'll get known for the quality piece of work. Now, you might not understand the strategic intent. You'll do that the best of your ability as a graduate or, you know, in a first or second, third year. But they always knew, whoever I worked for, that my attention to detail was pretty phenomenal in the sense that, I tried to make it as good as I possibly could. And I suppose you get known for quality then, and then they give you more complex and interesting work and you learn more things and then you become more and more valuable to the organisation. So I think it's that combination. But coming out of university, um, for me, my first role was with National Australia Bank. Um, so I didn't take the traditional path of um, going to high school and then going to university. I went to high school and then I went and worked in the family business, but I realised that that wasn't for me uh, long term. And I went back to uni as a mature age student. So when I came out, I had an opportunity after my second year at uni, I had a program called a cooperative year or co-op year at school. And I took that opportunity with National Australia Bank and worked for a guy called Rick Sawyers, who was an incredible guy who went on to become a very senior executive at NAB, but, and so I decided to do that. So I took the year off between my second and third year, worked full-time for NAB, and then just stayed on at NAB and then finished my degree part-time. So, but I worked in some really challenging and interesting environments and was given plenty of opportunities, but I worked for some really talented people and that was more important to me than the role I was doing. So my recommendation for a graduate would be, you know, obviously you've got a set of expertise that you've learned in university, but really worry about who's the person you're going to work for and what can you learn from that person. Mm. 
So would you so you say never worry about um, the job, worry about the person you're going to be working for? What sort of things can you do then if you're looking for a job? Like, could you kind of research businesses and see who's running them? Or like, if, if you say like you're not lucky enough to have connections already, yep. how do you kind of go out and get those connections to work for the people that you want to be working for? Yeah, I think you need to develop a funnel as a graduate. Most graduates come out of school mm. and they just get a job with whoever gets them the can give them the job and they get the first opportunity to do that. Mm. I think um, you really need to work on a funnel for yourself and say, what are the characteristics of the company that I want to work for? And then use a filter to start filtering those things down. And you can do that on Bloomberg. You can do that through a variety of ways that's publicly mm. available. But you might say, well, I want an international career. Okay, well, then there's no point in working for just a purely Australian company. Um, you know, if you want to work overseas and you want to go with them. So, you know, you, the, I would just develop that funnel of the criteria you want that you think you might want over the next five to ten years once you start work and then work out which companies are there. And then I think it's just a matter of networking yourself to those companies, finding out who are the most talented people, which is pretty easy by just talking to people about an organisation, they go, oh, that person's incredibly nice or that person's incredibly talented. Mm. And then just work your way into getting a, a, a conversation with that person. I find that um, most executives, if you're trying to get to them, if you contact them after six o'clock at night, they're checking their emails before they go to bed. And so you've got a fair chance of getting it mm. read and it might be read by their executive assistant because she won't have access to their emails, but they'll look at it. But I think you've just got to use whatever network you have. And, you know, the world's full of six degrees of separation. You've just got to leverage mm. people you've met and known along your life to see if they know somebody at that company. If they do, they'll give you an introduction and then that person might know the person who you want to work for. Mm. You say that you kind of might want to work for an international um, company or you've got to kind of look at these things prior if you want to do that sort of thing that's what you chose to do was that was that part of your selection of when you went to kpmg because you, you then obviously transferred to the to the new york um yeah. area was that something that is is that part of why you kind of went with them yeah i wanted uh well there was a couple of reasons why i went to kpmg i sort of was two-thirds of the way through my mba yeah. And I wanted to experience working for different companies outside of the one, which was National Australia Bank. Um, KPMG had the opportunity to work all around the world. Um, and I worked in Australia for a couple of years before I sort of started working on offshore assignments all around the world. But you get to work with some incredibly interesting companies. I, I was very fortunate. KPMG, I think I worked with 47 different companies over seven wow. years, you know, of which... 40 of those were financial services around the world, everywhere from China to Switzerland to the United States to Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, that gave me a great global perspective, um, which mm. you don't always get if you work for a domestic company here in Australia. Mm. And, and you mentioned earlier that New York was actually your favourite city that you lived in. Um, what was yeah. it that stood out to you about New York compared to all those other cities that you'd you know, been to, um, what, what was it like, you know, living there? Oh, look, New York's a, a wonderful city. I met my wife in New York. She's a New Yorker. And, um, I mean, Melbourne is my favourite city. I love Melbourne better than any city in the world. But as a yep. city to have a stint in, New York is fantastic. I went to New York for a couple of reasons. One, um, I was very clear that if, if you're good enough to hold your own in New York, you can hold your own pretty much anywhere in the world. So it was a great testing ground for me to test myself against others because in the US, most professionals who, you know, really want to test themselves in the most intense environment go to New York City to try themselves to see if they can hold their own. So what New York proved to me was that I could hold my own in New York, which meant I could hold my own pretty much in most other cities from a work viewpoint. Uh, it's an incredible city because of its intensity. Um, you know, I was there for 9-11, which was a you know, horrific period of my life from, mm. you know, that event. 
but the reality was um, it's just a city that doesn't stop. It's a 24 by 7 city and it just um, bright people everywhere, always people trying to get an edge. So it was, you know, you learn a lot. And, mm. and so you obviously had, had those challenges and in, in the 9-11 the happening, but there's also the positive. You met your wife over in New York. Did you want to talk a bit about how that happened? Um, yeah. Yeah, I met her after 9-11. <laughs> she, uh, she was working in the KPMG building because uh, yeah. she was doing some work at Deutsche Bank, which was down near World Trade Center, and they couldn't get access to the building, so she was working, and I met her in the office. And, um, yeah, we started going out, and uh, and then she moved to Australia. That was like 16 or 17 years ago, you know. Mm. So... Um, mm. But, yeah, look, New York is uh, just a, a great, intense city where the best of the best often go and, you know, you really get tested, which is great. And being with a big firm like KPMG, uh, on the consulting side, I could test myself whether I could handle it with some quite aggressive at time clients, you know, who are based in New York City, you know. Mm. And so, so, you, so you've gone to New York, Ken, and... Um, what drove then the decision to come back to Australia? And when you came back, did you um, did you come back already having teed up the role of the roles of NAB and the start of another chapter of them, or did you just decide to come back and then work it out when you when you arrived? Oh, look, I always knew I was going to come back. I knew it was a short period. Um, originally, my wife, or she wasn't my wife at the time, she was my girlfriend who came to Australia. We got engaged and then got married, actually, in the US. We went back to the US to get married. But the we, I'd been there sort of on and off and travelling a lot, you know, for nearly five years. So what it, what it gave me was an opportunity to come back. And we were originally going to come back to Australia for five years and then go back to New York for five years. That was the agreement I had with my wife. That never panned out. I came back with KPMG to KPMG at the time, Bearing Point, which was a, a consulting division of KPMG, came back to Melbourne with them and was with them for probably not quite a year coming back. And then I got approached by NAB to rejoin them again. So I'd left for seven years and then rejoined them again. But I'd had that global experience of working with all those clients for seven years around the world. Yeah. Um, okay, and then we're going to go. We're going, we're going to go into a couple of your areas with your those exec roles, you know, in a second. But um, if you just sort of take a take a high level view view again, so you you came back and then you had 15 years or so in executive roles with NAB. Yep. If you look if you look back on all of them, what was probably the most rewarding rewarding of those next 15 years? Which of which of all those different roles you did and why? Yeah, they were all quite different roles. Um, you know, the first role was the Chief Risk Officer of our Corporate Institutional and Markets Division, which is like our money markets division, our trading divisions. Um, that was quite an intense role because we had to make an enormous amount of cultural change in that part of the bank. It had recently had an ASIC and APRA review, and um, they really needed a cultural change. And that was a true global role, so I had teams all over the world in New Zealand, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, um, the US. So it was great to have that global perspective. Uh, I did a second role. My next role was Chief Financial Officer at Bank of New Zealand, which um, was a great role. I was there for about five and a half years. Uh, again, worked for a terrific guy in Cameron Klein and Andrew Thorburn. Still very good friends with Andrew Thorburn now. In fact, catching up for lunch next Friday. Um, then came back and uh, was CFO of MLC, which was going through another cultural change. And they, I was the first person from outside of the MLC group to come into the group, into their executive. Uh, then was CFO of MLC in the retail business, and then eventually CFO of the Australian Bank. So every role had different challenges. The last role was a big role because it had the whole of Australia, the business bank, the retail bank, all of the products where Bank of New Zealand was a standalone. My favourite role was probably the BNZ role for five and a half years. Um, it was a great role, great culture, really good team. And um, and that's been really important to me, you know, creating great teams is just like mm. the, 
the thing I enjoy most, uh, better than anything, you know, the fact yeah. getting the right team around me and, you know, I didn't change really any of the team at pretty much any of my roles, so I think everybody's got the capability once they get to that level, it's just about getting their mindset right to go on a journey with you to where you want to get to. Yeah, so so we'll just te- just get you to tell us a bit about that. So you went over to Bank of New Zealand. You were the chief appointed chief financial officer. Obviously, you'd come from Melbourne to Auckland. Turned up, presumed you didn't know too many people there. And then what you did was you set about a journey to create a world class finance team. And then that led to being awarded the best the best finance team in New Zealand in 2011. So yep. just tell, tell us about that journey and um, and why you did it, I guess. Oh, and it's a, it was an interesting journey because, I, you know, it was my first CFO role. So I hadn't been a CFO before I'd gone to Bank of New Zealand. I had an undergraduate in finance and I had an MBA uh, and I ended up at Harvard Business School uh, on the advanced management program. So going into the CFO role, I was, I had an, a guy called Shalish Mystery who was in the office of the CFO and he was sort of ran, I suppose, my small office that helped coordinate things. And it was really him who came up with the idea because everything seemed to be running pretty smoothly at Bank of New Zealand and the finance team seemed to be doing well. Um, and uh, he came up with this idea that we should become a world-class team and i said well if that's the case let's go on the journey and um, let's benchmark ourselves to see where our starting point is so we went ahead and benchmarked ourselves and you know over that five-year journey ended up being you know best team in new zealand voted by our peers as the best finance team in new zealand didn't change the leadership team at all in the same leadership team pretty much the whole way through. And uh, it was just a journey of adventure really for the team with an outright goal. And we got to the goal we wanted to from being benchmarked in the top 10% of teams in the world from a finance viewpoint. So, but you know, each of my team members had a role to play and you know, they had to bring their, their part of their division up to being world-class. So we went on, a really exciting and fun journey. It was great. Mm. And so where where did that kind of drive for perfection come? And, and I guess with what you've spoke mentioned then, like how did you then put that on your teammates as well, like to make become this world-class um, team? Yeah, so I, first of all, I had to get buy-in from my team members and my leadership team that they wanted to go on this journey because it wasn't going to be easy. And... I think they thought I was kidding a bit at the start because this sort of started a couple of months after I arrived and they thought it would pass, but I was pretty relentless about it. And in the end, I said, do you want to go on it? And one of the first things we did was we worked with um, a clinical psychologist, um, Harold Hillman, who worked with the team to really unpack the team so everybody could learn trust in each other. And one of the biggest things we had was enormous trust you know, everybody would back each other, but we had true trust. So we had a clinical psychologist work with us to really pull us apart and um, work out what the challenges were and with each of us so everybody understood each other where they were coming from so we could support everybody. And it was that, that was the turning point when that psychologist sort of, I suppose, did a lot of work with us to really deeply understand us, deeply understand our fears and all of that. Once you knew that, it was all out fixing a finance function was pretty straightforward after that. That must have been pretty innovative at the time to, you know, get a clinical psychologist because I can't imagine there would have been many other um, teams investing money in that that sort of thing. Where did you kind of get that, like, idea from? um, I got the idea from Andrew Thorburn because he did it with his executive team, which was the team I was Mm. working with. Um, So... That worked really well with his executive team, and I thought, well, I could transpire. It doesn't happen very much in corporate world, but mm. it was a, a great way of truly understanding each other, you know, because, you know, you'd have to talk about yourself in front of your peers for like an hour and a half or two hours, and you're getting all sorts of deep questions by the psychologist. Um, and you'd have to answer them in front of your peers. So 
you exposed yourself, I suppose, to a level of trust that you would never normally do in a business. And exposing yourself to that level of trust meant that fixing a finance problem was pretty straightforward compared to the trust you've given and shown me about what your childhood was like and the challenges you faced and, you know, your marriage is not as strong as what it was or whatever the case may be. And that, that was a big sort of turning point in us then determined to become a world-class team. And you also did some other um, innovative things, like you took your leadership team on a self-funded trip to the US to visit the best um, firms there, you know, learn from the best practices. Yep. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that as well? Yeah, we went on a, we went on a couple of study tours to the US. So it was really to explore what the best companies in the world were doing in their finance function. And we got a chance to go to Cisco and Boeing and some other companies to really wow. understand why, you know, we, we'd adopted a process, a Japanese process called Kaizen, which is a continuous improvement methodology. And we visited Boeing to see what they were doing in Kaizen and building aeroplanes. And we managed to get down on the ground at the Renton plant on the 737 line as they were building 737s and putting them together. And they were using Kaizen to re-engineer the way they were doing it. And we were using Kaizen in finance to re-engineer the way we were doing things. So it was great to show the team what's possible from a global perspective. So when they came back to New Zealand, you know, they've seen it firsthand. So it's a lot easier to mm. do something when you've seen it firsthand, I've found. And so how do you always, you know, come up with these outside-of-the-box sort of um, ideas that, you know, you wouldn't hear many other places, you know, getting the clinical psychologist and doing these self-funded trips? What kind of sparks these ideas to kind of do these things? Oh, I'd, I think there, there's no rocket science to it. You know, I learned yeah. about clinical psychologists from Andrew Thorburn, the study tours I'd been on one previously, um, so it was good to have seen what you can learn. And I really wanted to show my team that what was possible. And sometimes you can tell, you can read about things that you can close your books on day one or you can re-engineer this process. But to hear it from somebody else and actually see what they've done, and it makes a huge difference. Um, so, you know, we visited the Toyota factory and watched them use Kaizen. We visited the Boeing factory, watched them use Kaizen. We went to Cisco to understand how they closed their books on day one, um, which is a financial close. So we wanted to go and experience what it was like so that my team members could say, yeah, I've seen it, it's possible. Um, and I presume it was you using those networks that you had gained from your KPMG days or your New York days that would have opened the doors at those companies? Yeah, in some cases it was, uh, certainly in the case of Toyota and Boeing, but Cisco it was because we were a supplier and a buyer of Cisco product at Bank of New Zealand, which got us into there. Um, you know, we visited Disney and we did a back office tour of Disney, which is an underground tour to understand how they're using uh, Kaizen to re-engineer their processes so that everything's flawless at Disneyland and everything you see above ground at Disney is like everything runs like clockwork and they sort of took us behind the scenes at Disney to show us why it runs like clockwork and the fact that, you know, there might be two Mickey Mouses or three Mickey Mouses on Disneyland, but never at one point can a child ever see any one of those three Mickey Mouses because they come out of different tunnels behind different sets of different parts around Disneyland. So people get the Mickey Mouse experience, but they can never see Mickey Mouse twice, you know, they think it's the one Mickey and how does he go from there to there and so that magic, you know, and a classic example was, you know, at Disney that we learned about was we asked them how many cleaners they had at Disney and they said none. They said every employee's got a responsibility to clean. So we were walking with one of their most senior executives and he was just picking up things off the ground as we were walking, as we were walking around the park. So. You don't even see him wow. do it. And an example for Kaizen was that they know that people will, on average, put things into a bin if a bin's within 30 metres, or in that case, 30 yards in the US, from where they're standing. So 
you don't realise it, but at Disney, there is a bin within 30 yards of every location in Disney so that they collect more rubbish going into bins because people are prepared to walk 30 yards put the and then on average, they're going to be 15 yards away from a bin. So Disney, they have hundreds of bins to keep the grounds clear, but they, they're all strategically placed no greater than 30 yards apart. So, you know, wow. they've used Kaizen to re-engineer the way customers, and they know that, for instance, you know, you know, 65 or 70% of people turn right, not left, when they enter a, into a walkway. So they guide all of their roads and all of their stalls so that you're always turning right at Disney to where the high-value goods are or where the soft drinks are or whatever. So you've got more chance of buying them as you work through. Mm. It makes me think a bit about, like, when you watch that um, McDonald's found, like, that movie about the people that started it and how they right. would draw yeah. the chalk um, and work out the system of how food would kind of move through it when they'd put the burgers together yeah it's, it's the pretty, same thing it's pretty incredible um i guess to kind of do that because i guess a lot of people don't really think about those things no and you know great companies that have exceptional customer service and consistent service and that's what we wanted in finance was consistency so we wanted to re-engineer things to get them as consistent as possible mm. i think uh like one of the things I really love about your story, Ken, is that you just, is that you're prepared to just try things and ask, and you know, you just called up Cisco or Disney and said, can we come? And you kind of, you know, you're just creating stuff out of nothing. It's a little bit like what Ron and I are doing with the podcast here. And I guess, so just, just thinking broadly again, so a lot of listeners who are like Ron, just graduating from university at the moment, yeah. what, what advice would you give graduates today starting their career? Yeah, look, network, networking is important as getting, you know, your first role or getting those first couple of roles. But I think more importantly, once you get your first role, do the best you can possibly do and work hard. Not necessarily long, but work hard, you know. And if it, you know, if it means spending an extra hour or two at work, while you're young and you're a graduate, spend the extra hour or two at work to get all the little things done right so you're ready for the next day. You know, I, I just I think that people's attention to detail is really important because if people know they can trust you and you can deliver and you say you're going to do something and you do it as a graduate, all of a sudden you don't realise it, but they keep giving you more and more work and then all of a sudden you're learning more and more things and you're becoming more and more valuable to them. And then they're going to pay you more and more. But it's like a cascading set of rolling moss. It's like it's very easy to, you know, do your best. And when they trust you, they'll give you more work. And when they give you more work, it's more complex work. And then you, you learn that and you become more invaluable to them as an organisation. Mm. And, and so, Ken, you became... You know, an invaluable sort of asset to where you worked, and you, you ended up having quite a demanding career, lots of senior roles. Um, would you describe executive work as high pressure, and what were some of the coping mechanisms you would use so that you could, you know, stay at that level and work for such long hours? Well, I didn't work really long hours. Um, that was a really important part of my career. Yeah. I had a great work-life balance. Um, but what I did do was two things that enabled me to have a work-life balance and not to have uh, any pressure. The first thing was only recruit people who are much better and brighter than you are. And I've spent my whole life just recruiting people who are better and brighter than I am. And, you know, in every role that I've had, I've tried to surround myself with people who are much better and brighter than I am. And that's generally been, you know, really incredibly terrific for me. Second thing is, Give them enormous delegation because if they're better and brighter than you are, they're probably going to make a better decision than you are. Give them the responsibility to do it. So I found as an executive, I didn't find it really that stressful over, you know, the 25, 30 years at all. I had really good work-life balance, but I had that because I recruited people who were much better and brighter than I was. Mm. And so what, what was your work-life balance? Did you, you know... Was it the skiing or the high-performance um, car racing that 
yeah, this I gave mean, you that balance and that was kind of a good outlet for you? And do you think by having those activities is actually what made you be able to perform well at work? No, I don't know whether there's necessary correlation. I've always just tried not to work on the weekends if I can. Yeah. You know, it's been rare for me to work weekends during my career. Sometimes you have to when you're in the critical midst of a merger and acquisition or whatever the case may be. But as a general rule, tried not to work weekends, you know, ever. Um, you know, when I went on vacation, I turned my phone off. Um, you know, I was one of the only executives at NAB who'd go on vacation and turn their phone off entirely and turn it back on the day I got back to work. Um, that way I wasn't checking emails while I was away. And if someone desperately wanted me, they could ring me and I'd pick up my phone. But I never knew what was in my emails um, while I was away. And I'd often have long vacations but still just turn off my phone. And I just found that you didn't have to think about work then. And so... You closing yourself up off to work during holidays and weekends, um, was that kind of what made you ensure that you're able to have a, a healthy family life during your career and, and you know still be there for your family and all that? Like was that a key yeah. aspect of it? And was there any other sort of things that that you'd want to bring oh. up that kind of you yeah, know, I think it was a help key balance aspect. life and work? Yeah, look it was a pretty key aspect. It's just um you know, when work's over, work's only just part of your life. You've got to mm. be able to compartmentalise. Okay, work's and you're full on for when you're at work and then when it's off, you're doing other things. I think having a work-life balance and a lot of interest outside of work makes it a lot easier to turn off from work. I think some executives get too involved in work and work becomes the be-all and end-all. Uh, for me, it was a means to an end, not a not an end that I just wanted to keep doing. Um, I think the other thing was, you know, just being there for those important moments in life and work will always wait, you know what I mean? Everybody thinks it's super important and it is at the time, but, you know, you just got to prioritise your life. And I think, you know, in nearly all of my teams, I used to say in my leadership team, I don't want you sending emails on the weekend unless it's absolutely crucial. You know, put them in draft and then send them out Monday morning because that way all our teams are not checking their emails on the weekend because if our executives and our senior leadership teams that I'm involved with are not sending emails on the weekend, then nobody's checking emails. They can get on with their own life and not worry, am I missing an email on the weekend or does my boss want me something? So having those agreements and Andrew... Thorburn at Bank of New Zealand taught us that, you know, we didn't send emails at all as an executive team unless it was absolutely crucial. And if it was, you'd usually get a text to say, can you have a look at this email? But as a rule, you know, 90% of the time, you wouldn't get an email on the weekend. We'd just save them up and send them Monday morning. But that way, our team members underneath you are not under that pressure to check emails on the weekend. So they can have a family work-life balance. Yeah, I reckon that's such a great, such a great tip. Keen in terms of the weekends, and if you know, if you're running a team, is such a good uh, culture. So, just thinking about your career again, um, uh, were there any sort of conscious, you know, think about people starting their career again and people watch suits and things like this these days and they're trying to work out what's the best way to climb up the corporate pyramid. Not that it's all about that, Ken, of course, but were there any conscious strategies that you used during your career to kind of help you get to the top? Because you think about it, Ken, NAB's a company of, I'm not sure how many should have researched this, but let's it's say, right <laughs> you know, and you got to say within the top, you know, 10 or so people in the whole company. Is there yeah. any conscious strategies you use to work your way up? Uh, look, I think there, there's a number of strategies. Uh, the first is worry about who you work for so you can learn more. So work for a really talented person. And I think in my career, some of the most talented people that I've worked for in my career have just been phenomenal in their learnings that I've learned from them and what they've gone on to do. The second one, only recruit people who are much better and brighter than you are when you get a chance to be a team leader. Make sure you build the A-grade team around you. Don't tolerate B and C-grade players. Just recruit the A-grade players around you as your leadership team. 
Uh, I think the third thing is get as many experiences as you possibly can, and uh, and that might involve global travel where you get to see other companies around the world and therefore you can bring back those ideas to your company. And then I think fourthly, um, just work hard, you know, uh, set your boundaries for what you want to work and then whatever those times are, work to those boundaries, but work incredibly hard and diligent during those times and try and take on responsibility. So when people ask, oh, we've got a new project or a new initiative at work, put your hand up to be on the team. Yeah, I'm happy to be involved in that. You'll learn more. You'll get to network with other people. They'll get to see you work really well. They'll get to see you're a good team player. They'll get to see your quality of work. So when the next opportunity comes up, they go, oh, look, I worked with Ron or I worked with James. He was great on a project with mine. We should grab him for that role. So, yeah, there's some things just to think about. Yeah. Sounds like good. getting a job as a grad coming out, do your research, build your funnel of what you want to get out of your job over the next five to ten years. And if it's, okay, well, I want a global career, then look for a global firm. Look for a, if I want diversity in the type of work, Maybe work for a consulting firm's got diversity, you know. If I want to work life balance, maybe not working for a consulting firm's the answer because, you know, they're often long hours. So you've got to define what you want out of your five years and then reverse engineer it to go, okay, well, these firms had that opportunity. Now I've got to go and network to those firms. Mm. Okay. But don't worry about all the level you start at because, you know, if you decide you want to work for, I don't know, pick a figure, NAB, and you come out as a graduate, and you're looking for that perfect graduate role, but it's not there, but there's a role in the call centre in the business banking or, or retail bank, take that, because you can always grow. Once you're in an organisation, especially if it's a big one, it's very easy to move throughout the organisation. So don't get hung up on the first role you're going to get, because your second, third or fourth role, you might only be in that role for 12 months and you'll get another role and you move to another role. Okay, so great advice there. So thinking back to 2018, you decided to open a independent BMW and mini workshop in Williamstown here in Melbourne called yep. the BM Performance Centre. Tell us about that experience of setting up your own business. Yeah, well, look, I've always had a passion for cars and uh, I owned the building. I bought the factory because I'd had a, they call a man shed or a, you know, a place where I can put my cars and tinker with my cars. And, um, you know, my wife said to me, you know, you really should do something with um, every other asset we own. You know, the return on equity on that asset, except for your man shed, which just seems to be, uh, you know, you put more money into it, you buy more cars and you tinker more. Um, and we did a bit of research. We built an extensive business case and I found my partner and, you um, we started at 50-50 and um, we've got uh, the workshop now. It's really busy. You know, I've got a number of technicians that work there and we're a specialist workshop that just does a lot of high-performance stuff, a lot of M vehicles, BMWs, a lot of Audis, a lot of Volkswagens. And we just stick to our knitting. We only look after four makes, which is BMW Mini, have the same software, same engines, Audi, Volkswagen, same company. And, you know, we only work on those four makes of cars. And... Um, yeah, it's yeah. been really successful and it's been great to get involved in a small business again and, you know, to grow it, which I've really enjoyed. One thing I loved, I, re I read, Ken, that when you were looking for a business partner, did you just, you just advertised? You said, well, this is kind of what I want to do, but I need someone to do it with me. And you just yep. advertised. Good on Yeah, on Seek, I said, I'm looking for a partner to start a business and, um, you know, and that's where I met my partner, Mark, and um, yeah, he was looking for another role. He wanted to go out on his own, and um, we spent six months building the business case, validating that the market was there, that we could do it, and then we both kicked down our equity. And interestingly, we've repaid all of our equity. We have no equity left in the business because we, the business was profitable, basically, from when it started, and all of our equity returned as well as profit returned. So... Um, yeah, it's been great. Ken, Jimmy and I are, are very passionate about the importance of mental health and reaching out to others. Um, we just wanted to ask you, can you tell us about a time in your life um, when someone reached out to you 
Um, and, and what did they, they say to you? Like, what was their advice? Oh, look, I, I think, you, you know, you've got to check in really regularly with your team members mm. that they're okay. Um, and you can usually sense when things aren't 100% with some people, you know. Some people have a good facade, but there's always a crack that you can usually... you just got to keep an eye out for that crack and really just making sure that they're okay. Um, and I think just asking the question, you know, are you okay, but in a genuine way, and um, with my team members to relieve their stress, I, when I catch up with my team members each week, I used to ask them the same two or three questions each week is what can I do for you to help you be successful or what do you need a hand with? And often that's a catalyst for opening up, oh, I'm under pressure, I can't get this done, okay, I'll take that on, I'll do that. And then they see a relief of pressure. Um, it's always quite difficult to tell between personal life and business life at times, you know, but all of us have challenges in our personal life, you know. You just got to have be empathetic and, um, you know, my wife said to me the other night, the pizzas were delayed that I'd ordered. And um, no, it wasn't pizzas, it was uh, some Asian fusion that we'd ordered for delivery. Mm. And she, you know, I was complaining because they said they'd be an hour. I thought that was a long time. And they rang and said, oh, look, they're delayed. And it was like an hour and a half. And I was going, you know, what's going on? My wife said, you know, put yourself in their shoes. They're a small business, working hard. You know, it's Tuesday night difficult to get staff and you know you're worried about whether you're getting your your delivery done on time show a bit of empathy so you know um yeah you sometimes need people to remind you sometimes to show empathy okay ken so these are the two questions we always finish with and i know one thing i noticed ken was um uh during the during the covid19 pandemic you couldn't open post on LinkedIn, offering your time and advice uh, and even offering references, I think, to anyone you, you've worked with who'd been laid off during that time. Yep. And, I, you know, that's just, that just speaks volumes, I guess, about who you are. And so in terms of times when you have reached out and supported people, would you say that just those regular chats and that regular and open communications basically the most important thing for ensuring your friends and work colleagues are in a good space? Yeah, I think it's the regularity of it. And, you know, you've got to have it with true intent. You can't just have a methodical way of catching up with people. Um, I think you've just got to be genuine about, and when they do ask for help, you've got to be, if you're if you asking, you know, is there anything I can do, be prepared for whatever they've got to say, because if they say I'd like you to do this, there's no point in saying, no, I can't do that, because that just defeats the whole purpose. So be prepared and commit to whatever you, you say you're going to do to help them, as long as it's within reason. Yeah. So um, I think just regular communication is important. Okay. So um, I think that's a great way to finish, Ken. Um, the key, I just go back to where we started in terms of uh, there's those that advice that you said right at the beginning, you know, never worry about the job you've got, worry about the person you work for, and whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. Um, so look, on behalf of Ron and I and all our listeners, thanks so much for your time today, Ken, on the R&J Yarn. Sounds great. Thanks for letting me uh, invite me. Hey, so what I loved about this interview, Ron, was how Ken mixed a really structured approach to his career and leadership, but he actually balanced it with showing empathy for his colleagues. At my work, I really identify with what he says about the importance of those one-on-one -on -one conversations. They're a real way of checking in on people, and it's something that I like to do quite a bit, head down to a local cafe with a workmate. It was a classic interview, Jimmy, and I find that the best way to connect with people at work is to have those chats throughout the day, um, just checking in, seeing how everyone's going, and and that's some really great tips in regards to career progress as well and I love some of the anecdotes he used throughout the interview. The story about the extreme details um, Disney go to ensure that you don't see Mickey Mouse twice was absolutely classic. It really goes to show the level of detail 
these large corporations go to in their thinking. And as Ken said, it's a lot easier to learn something when you see it firsthand. Yeah, that's definitely something I agree with too. If you want to do something out of the ordinary, then you've really got to seek that edge through a unique learning or experience. It certainly motivates me and my work in renewable energy to get out of my comfort zone and get some more first-hand experience. And so, Ron, we both like coffee. Maybe we need to do a business trip to Colombia. I don't know about that, Jimmy. It might start as a business trip, but I think it might end up as a bit of a party trip. But I certainly think we can start by sampling all the local roasters in Melbourne and getting some roasters on the podcast. Okay, I'll settle for that, Ron. So who are we chatting to next? So on our next episode, we'll be sharing an amazing interview we recorded with Paula Jones, who is an award-winning film director and producer in New Zealand. Here's a sneak peek you can check out. When you like thinking about what you could have done, you'd be an abject misery and the opportunities you've missed. So did I make the right decisions? I've had a roller coaster of a life and I've had a great life. And I've taken every opportunity that's landed in front of me and gone, I'm not sure if I could do it, but I'll find out by tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Just made it happen. Um, And I think I've got a bit of a celebration of life. At least I didn't make up. If you don't want to miss that podcast, check out our website, theyarn.org.au, and subscribe to our newsletter so you'll always be up to date with our releases. And lastly, if you really enjoyed this episode here at The Yarn, we would appreciate if you subscribe and leave five-star feedback on your favourite podcast platform. Those are the two best ways to support us to keep the lights on and the podcast coming. And as always, feel free to send us an email to podcast at theyarn.org.au. We love hearing from you.